You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Carcos, Rotary Coast, M.D., Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hayfay, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time, we discussed the origins of ancient Mediterranean piracy. And as far as I know, and I should be clear, I'm not well-versed in ancient history, especially outside of the Mediterranean, but as far as I can tell, those are the oldest records of piracy anywhere in the world. By the period that we're going to be discussing today, there's piracy everywhere. China, India, and Indonesia especially. But for our purposes, we're going to stick to the Mediterranean. And for the sake of clarity, I'd like to make a couple of notes on geography. We're going to be talking about the Aegean Sea, the Ionian Sea, and the Adriatic Sea. Now, these are three bodies of water that kind of surround ancient Greece. The Adriatic is the body of water that separates Italy from the Balkans. Just to the south of that we find the Ionian Sea. And then if you head to the east and the north you find the Aegean Sea, which is the sea on which all of the coasts of Greece are found, but it stretches further north as well, up past Anatolia even up to Bulgaria. These are three distinct bodies of water, but they're still all parts of the greater Mediterranean. We left off at the end of the Bronze Age with the Bronze Age collapse. There were crop failures, natural disasters, and the never-ending scourge of piracy. All of this led to disastrous population decline and a period we call the Greek Dark Age. Now that ended 
about 800 BCE, when Greece finally started to re-emerge from the mists of history. This is episode 298, Laistis and Piratis. They call the period following the Greek Dark Age Archaic Greece. We have almost no written records about the Archaic period, but there is a wealth of archaeological data. It was during the Archaic Greek period when the city-state became the most important political and social unit in all of Greece. That's the big difference between Archaic Greece and the old Minoan or Mycenaean civilizations. Those older proto-Greek societies, they operated on what they call a palace economy. They were societies in which everything orbited around the palace. And by palace, I, it's exactly what you think. It's the home, the estate, of the king or queen. These kings or queens, though, were absolute monarchs in a way that nobody in medieval or early modern history could ever claim to be. Sometimes they were even divine god-kings, but everything in that particular king or queen's sphere of influence belonged personally to the king or queen. All the money, all the land, every job, every scrap of food, everything was owned by and distributed by the palace. But all of that ended with the Bronze Age collapse, in Greece anyway. The first archaeological records we have of the Archaic period present a much more familiar society. Instead of a palace run by a single monarch to whom everybody was 100% beholden, people began to congregate around the polis, a city. That's a place where there were temples and homes, and importantly, marketplaces. The marketplace became the center of all life for the Greeks. You know, food, pottery, clothes, any other necessary materials were no longer collected and distributed by a single palace monarch. People made what they could on their own farms or in their own homes, but they still needed a place to trade for all of the goods that they couldn't produce themselves. That's the marketplace, and I know all of this seems super obvious. Oh, you're telling me that people traded for goods at the marketplace? What an amazing historical insight, Matt. And, yeah, okay. But it was a big deal for the people of Greece. They were still kind of figuring out how to do all of this. And it's important to world history because the Greeks were among the first to organize their society in this fashion. The people over in, say, Persia, to the east, well, they were scandalized at the Greek way of life. They saw it as low and base and, above all, dishonest. They were disturbed by how people in marketplaces lied and cheated each other just to get the best deal. Instead of spending their days in worshipful reverence to the god-king, they spent their days haggling, which is just gross. There was no order to any of it. Now, the people in, say, India or China, they had no idea what was happening in Greece, but if they did, they would have been equally scandalized at this way of life. They were still operating on more or less a palace economy. Of course, they were around this time becoming giant palace economies with 
tens or even hundreds of thousands of subjects, but still the same basic premise was understood by all. Without a divine monarch to oversee everything, these market cities needed some regulation. So it's around this period that we start to see the first government buildings in Greece. We start to see the beginnings of Greek democracy. And an expanded government means records, which means writing. It's around 500 BCE that those early writings begin to put an end to archaic Greece and give way to classical Greece. This is the Greece of hoplites in the phalanx, the Greece of Athens and Sparta, the Parthenon, the Peloponnesian War, and, of course, the War with Persia. This is the Greece that has not yet but will eventually give us the most famous ship in Mediterranean history, the Trireme. That's a ship with three decks of oarsmen, as well as a sail, and it was incredibly fast. But that wasn't for a while yet. For now, as classical Greece was just beginning, they were still relying on the longship. That's a single open deck of oarsmen with a square sail. It was a fine ship, to be sure. These were the ships that would carry the mythic heroes like Achilles and Odysseus to their war with Troy. The poet known as Homer wrote his epics, the Iliad and the Odyssey, at the tail end of the Archaic period. And it's inaccurate, really, to say that he wrote them. Homer composed the Iliad and the Odyssey, but he did not actually write them down. First of all, writing in Greece was still in its very early infancy. More to the point, though, Homer himself was blind, so he would have been unable to do so. According to legend, Homer was kind of a traveling bard. He had a young man, or maybe a you know, a teenage boy who would guide him from town to town. While he was there, he would spend several weeks performing his epic poems in naturally bite-sized chunks. These are the tales of Queen Helen, the wife of King Agamemnon, a woman of whom it said her face was so beautiful that she launched a thousand ships. She did so when she left her husband, King Agamemnon, in favor of the Trojan prince Paris. Agamemnon gathered his greatest warriors, a thousand ships worth, and took them over to Troy. These greatest warriors included Achilles, famously, but more important to our story, Odysseus. When... Troy finally fell thanks to, I think it was a big rabbit. The war eventually ended after ten long years, and the Greeks sailed home. But Odysseus was going to have some trouble on the way. That ten-year-long voyage is what we call the Odyssey. Homer's Odyssey gives us several references to Mediterranean piracy in archaic Greece. Twice in that epic we see Odysseus meet with another ship at sea, and both times he uses the same greeting. It seems to have kind of a ritualistic essence to it. 
He says to those ships, quote, O strangers, who are you? From where have you come along sea lanes? Are you traveling for trade, or are you just roaming about like pirates who risk body and soul, bringing harm to other people? End quote. From whence are ye come? From the sea. And Odysseus does encounter a number of pirates on his voyage. At one point he has to impersonate a band of pirates, and he says, quote, Farming I never cared for, nor a life at home. I reveled in long ships with oars. I loved polished lances, arrows in the skirmish, the shapes of doom that others shake to see. Carnage suited me. End quote. Which is objectively a pretty awesome thing to say. But of course, not the truth for Odysseus. He wanted to get back home to his life of ease with his wife and his children on their farming estate. The problem with Homer, though, is how he defines the difference between noble heroes and vile pirates. You know, Odysseus sure isn't a pirate, but the things he does, aside from, you know, dealing with, like, magic creatures, when it comes to just raiding and pillaging, it looks a lot like piracy. At one point, Odysseus speaks a line saying, quote, We boldly landed on the hostile place, and sacked the city, and destroyed the race. Their wives made captive, their possessions shared, and every soldier found a like reward. And that's pretty brutal. You know, we arrived, destroyed their race, and took all of the women. Not a good look, and in retrospect hard to paint as anything but brutal sea raiding. Especially not when Odysseus returns to Ithaca with a ship full of plunder. He's an amazingly wealthy man when he gets back home, and it's entirely from plunder taken from other people. The difference, though between Odysseus and his adversaries in the mind of a writer like Homer is that Odysseus had the blessings of the gods, of Poseidon and Zeus in this case. You know, when Odysseus is compared to a pirate, he can always say, well, the gods said that I am noble and heroic and you are vile and detestable, so that's the end of that argument. And it would have been seen as the end of that argument to the Greeks, Odysseus is one of our noble heroes, not one of their savage barbarians. Which makes defining piracy in the era difficult. But that's not the most interesting part from that passage. The interesting bit for me comes at the end, when Odysseus says their possessions shared, and every soldier found a like reward. He's saying that every man on his crew shared out their spoils equally. And as far as I know, this is the first record of a crew at sea sharing their spoils in such a fashion. Of course, it doesn't seem like it was a revolutionary idea. Homer's just saying, yeah, that's what they did, no big deal. So it had to be happening long before this, but I can't find any reference to it before. And certainly after this time, among sea raiders of all stripes from... Sea raiders working on behalf of their king to sea raiders who were absolutely nothing but pirates, they all shared their spoils equally. It's a tradition that's going to ring down through the ages, down to our 
early modern pirates of the West Indies. Maybe more than anything else, the defining characteristic by the 1700s of what makes a pirate a pirate. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Now, I've been using the word pirate, and most modern translations do, but it's not what Homer actually called these pirates, or it's not what the scribes who eventually wrote down the Odyssey called these pirates. In part, this is an issue because the Odyssey was transcribed in two distinct Greek dialects, and they used different words, but more than that, it's a question of uh, definition. You know, what is a pirate? Most of the early written versions of Homer's Odyssey use the word leistis, and of course I apologize to anyone who speaks Greek or ancient Greek. Leistis is a word that appears on a few tablets from the early classical period, but it doesn't always mean pirate in the context in which it's written. A more accurate translation would probably be bandit. However, some later transcriptions, usually those from coastal regions, begin to use a different word, piratus. And piratus are definitely distinct from the bandits. They were bandits of the sea, and there's an additional kind of implication in the etymology of the word. They were bandits of the sea, yes, but they were also nomads. They were people without a home, and... They were traitors. So you've got these ships that were filled with violent bandits who called no city or kingdom home. This is an age where the world revolved around its cities in Greece and its kingdoms elsewhere. These pirates lived outside of the civilized world, but still, in a tertiary way, they were an integral part of it. You know, they might rob you, they probably would, but they also offered goods that were often hard to come by through more legal means. And that character of a classical Greek pirate begins to look an awful lot like our later Golden Age pirates. But as the classical Greek period marched on, these pirates became more and more a historical curiosity. We do see quite a few laws written throughout ancient Greece that define what a pirate is. Sure, they're bandits of the sea acting outside of any national or city-state authority. 
and that was a problem, but before long, Greece had bigger problems to deal with. By 500 BCE, the Achaemenid Persian Empire had reached the shores of the Aegean, along the coasts of Anatolia. The ruins of Troy were under the control of Persia, as were a ton of Greek colonies in Asia Minor. And in 499, a fleet of Persian warships sailed for the Greek peninsula. Now, we hardly have time to discuss the whole history, or even really a basic history of the Greco-Persian Wars. But I imagine you've heard at least the outline of this story. You know, they were a series of invasions led by Darius the Great and later his son Xerxes the Great, both of whom were god-kings of the Persian Empire. These were the invasions that led to the battles of Marathon and the Battle of Thermopylae under Leonidas, that's the 300 Spartans. But there were a lot more battles to come, both at sea and on land. And some of these were pretty serious affairs, you know, an existential threat to Greek civilization. And with all of that on your plate, nobody has time for piracy. You know, if you're a pirate living in the Levant, or somewhere on the coasts of Anatolia, and the Persians invade, well, they're going to conquer you and conscript you into their navy. On the other hand, you might flee before the Persians, and if you do so, well, you're going to get snapped up and conscripted into the Greek navy, which, for some of those Greek colonists, might have been the much more preferable option. One way or another, no one had time for piracy. Everybody was too busy fighting wars. Or, if there was piracy, and I'm sure there was some, but if it existed, it wasn't enough to make any real ripples in the historic record. Plus, you know, there was pay if you were willing to fight for the Greeks, which was always preferable to not getting paid. All of those Greek city-states had combined into one large confederation called the Delian League. The Delian League was led by Athens, and Athens really became the center of Greek naval activity. So, if you were a pirate, why not take up a job for the Athenians and go raid Persian shipping? Sounds pretty good. And, for us, a little familiar. When the Persians were finally convinced to stay on their side of the Aegean, the Delian League crumbled. But what followed was called the Thirty Years' Peace. The city-states of Greece did not fight one another, but it was a very tense, armed peace. The Athenian navy was unrivaled and dominated the Aegean, so throughout this peaceful period there was still no real pirate activity. But then that Thirty Years' Peace fell apart, and a thirty-year-long war between city-states erupted. This is the Peloponnesian War, and much like the wars against Persia, because there was so much legitimate fighting going on, we don't see a lot of pirate activity. Anyone who had a mind to raid some of their Greek neighbors was perfectly welcome to do so while on the payroll. The Peloponnesian War, again, is long and complex, and we're not going to talk about it here at all. The end result is that Sparta, 
one dominance of the Greek city-states for a while, but it didn't last. See, they won that dominance through an alliance with the Persians on the one hand and some barbarian-ish people to the north called the Macedonians. And to be fair to the Macedonians, they weren't barbarians in any modern understanding of the word, but the Greeks considered them less cultured, hence barbarian. The Macedonians decided that they were not being treated fairly. They weren't getting their due. They weren't even getting any respect. So they pulled out of their alliance with Sparta, and Spartan domination fell apart, and we have about another century of off-and-on warfare. It's less savage than the Peloponnesian War, but it's still plenty of employment opportunities for a young pirate who might be going to sea. Now, while one city-state or another, sometimes it was Sparta, sometimes Athens, sometimes Thebes, somebody might be on top at any given point, but in the larger scope of things, Athens won this period of warfare. Not the military war, necessarily, but the cultural war. While a military dictatorship might make for an excellent army, such as in Sparta, it didn't make for long-lasting economic prosperity, but the roughly democratic, market-based system in Athens made for an excellent long-term economy, so everybody began to adopt that way of life, regardless of whether or not they liked Athens. Athenian poetry, theater, and most notably philosophy became the cultural touchstone for all of the Greek city-states. Meanwhile, up to the north, those barbarian-ish people, the Macedonians, they were planning an invasion. The man who planned that invasion and prepared for that invasion was Philip II of Macedon. But Philip II died before the invasion could begin, and his young son, Alexander, took up the mantle. There's a lot to say about the conquests of Alexander the Great. However, in regard to piracy, there's a lot less. Alexander's army was a land-based army, and with a few notable exceptions, they marched from conquest to conquest. Back in the Aegean, the Athenian navy, which was now Alexander's navy, was still pretty spectacular and did a pretty good job keeping piracy down. There's really only one anecdote worth noting about Alexander and pirates. I've shared it before. It comes down to us from St. Augustine. He tells us that when Alexander confronted a pirate they had captured, quote, when the king asked the pirate what he meant by keeping hostile possession of the sea, the pirate answered with bold pride, What do thou meanest by seizing the whole earth? Because I do it with a petty ship, I am called a pirate, whilst thou who do it with a great fleet are styled emperor. End quote. It's a good line, I can't deny it, but when it comes to Alexander the Great and piracy, that's really about it. His gigantic, unified, well-armed empire didn't leave a lot of room for naval entrepreneurs on the open seas. But then Alexander died, rather suddenly, 
His empire fell apart almost immediately. It would take a few years to iron out the details here, but before long the Alexandrian Empire had fallen into four primary kingdoms under four of Alexander's closest confidants. In the east, what had been the Achaemenid Persian Empire, we find the Seleucid Empire under Seleucus, the former commander of the Silver Shields and elite infantry unit in Alexander's army. In Egypt, the Ptolemaic dynasty, under Ptolemy the Great, who was one of the men who had been raised alongside Alexander. He was educated in those same lessons given by Aristotle, an Athenian, who may have actually been Alexander's half-brother, Ptolemy, not Aristotle. Most of Greece was under another of Alexander's former classmates, a man named Cassander, a man who killed Alexander's son and heir to claim the throne of Macedonia. To the northeast of Greece and the northwest of the Seleucid Empire, we find the kingdoms of Thrace and Dacia. They fall under the rule of Lysimachus, yet another boyhood confidant of Alexander and a member of his personal bodyguard. As you might imagine, these disunited kingdoms had a ton of border conflicts. They did okay when the men who founded them, Alexander's personal bodyguards and generals, when they ruled, things went all right, but when they died and their heirs took over, things got pretty bad. Those borders were rarely, if ever, really well-defined. That means that there were these periods of anarchy and little pockets all around the Mediterranean world. And as you might imagine, that means brigands and pirates. This era, called the Hellenistic period, has been called the epitome of mercenary warfare. There were hundreds, maybe even thousands, of little unaffiliated enclaves all around the region. Oftentimes, those would be found in those hard-to-reach coastal areas that dot the Mediterranean. All of these mercenaries were willing to fight for pay whenever there was a war on, and they did. Sometimes Thrace would pay them to invade the Seleucid lands in Anatolia. Sometimes the Ptolemaic kingdom would pay them to invade the Seleucid lands in the Levant. Sometimes the king of Macedonia, or wherever, would hire a few privateers to raid grain stores that belonged to his neighbors. It was lucrative work for these privateers, but they had a problem. There wasn't always a war on. Sometimes there was a peace, and if you made your living raiding Egyptian grain stores or Greek vineyards, what were you going to do? when no one was willing to pay you to do so. And it wasn't just the money, you know, they relied on the food they got on those raids as well. But I think we all know what those privateers did. They did it anyway. They sailed and raided and captured ships at sea. It's a lot like... Well, you know, I would argue that the Hellenistic period was not the ultimate era of mercenary warfare. I would argue that the early modern period beats it by a mile. At no other era in history were there so many 
independent, private military contractors operating at one time, as the time roughly from, I don't know, 1650 to 1750. The difference here is that all of these independent private military contractors happened to be working at sea. The age of privateers stretched from the East Indies to the West Indies, everywhere in between the whole world had privateers operating for one of the great empires out there. The Hellenistic period may have had lots of mercenaries, but can a tiny corner of the Mediterranean really compete with that? But what was happening here in the Mediterranean does look a lot like what was happening all around the world. However, most of that extra-legal privateering, if you will, most of that didn't happen on the shores of Greece or Egypt. They were well-armed lands, and though it was profitable, it was also dangerous. But if you were to sail just a bit further west... There were a lot of prime targets waiting to be plundered. Now, the Carthaginians along the coast of Africa, they were dangerous. You wanted to stay away from them. But there were Greek colonies on Sicily that were rich and fat. Even better, though, there was a region with almost no navy to speak of. The Roman Republic and all of her Italian allies were fertile and rich, and filled with grain, and wine, and olive oil. And the coasts of the Adriatic were almost entirely undefended at sea. Any ships that might be carrying cargo to wherever were extremely easy, lucrative targets. Before long, the Adriatic was home to untold numbers of pirates hunting for Roman booty, and for a while that worked. Worked really well, in fact. A lot of tiny pirate enclaves became future powerful kingdoms. But while the Roman Republic, even the Roman Empire, was really never that great at sea, they were, not yet, but soon to be the greatest land power ever seen in the entire world up to that point. They may be unable to defend by sea, for now. But, well... Any enterprising Roman consul might just decide to raise an army, invade your homeland, conquer your city, and ensure that you could never raid from those shores again. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews or just recommended the show. You all make it possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, I've got one that's pretty on topic here. Ancient History Fangirl. It's a fantastic podcast about ancient history. Much of the stuff we've been talking about here today. In much more detail. You can find them at airwavemedia.com. Once again, remember to go on over to surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave to take that brief survey. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you've yet to check them out, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly... 
thank you for listening.